the real strengths in these towns and the way towns are set up in Maine is that there's a lot of local control. So the community can get together. Uh, they can get together with the uh, adjacent community as well. But it's pretty easy to get together to make decisions like this. You know, do we want broadband or not? This is episode 333 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, Will Mitchell and Sean Myers from Vetro FiberMap join Christopher. The company serves the telecommunications industry with open-source mapping software. Vetro FiberMap helps entities in both the private and public sectors with fiber deployment. Will and Sean explain how they've worked with ISPs and other entities in unexpected ways, including marketing and planning. They share that working with Internet service providers and communities has helped them explore new uses for their product. During the conversation, Christopher, Will, and Sean touch on the data that VetroFiberMap uses and the different sources for GIS information. They also get into some of the various projects they've worked on and the types of projects where they anticipate growth, including projects in Maine, where local and state efforts are improving Internet access. Now here's Christopher with Will Mitchell and Sean Myers from VetroFiberMap. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, and I've got a guest who's trying to steal my name, Will Mitchell, the CEO of Vetro Fiber Map. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Chris. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, with him, we also have Sean Myers, recently moved out of Buffalo into Portland, Maine, Chief Operating Officer of Vetro Fiber Map. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Looking forward to talking with you. Yes. Um, so I, it's worth noting, Will, we have no relation whatsoever, at least none that we've discovered, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so for people who are thinking Vetro Fiber Map, what is that? Uh, what is it? Vetro Fiber Map is a fiber management GIS mapping platform. Uh, it's one that we've built uh, from the ground up and uh, launched into this marketplace of broadband design and planning and development. Uh, it's being used to um, deploy broadband networks, most, most specifically fiber optic and fiber to the home networks um, throughout the life cycle of, the, of that process. And how does having a map make that easier to, to manage or to do? It's interesting. Sean and I are both coming from uh, mapping uh, careers, uh, careers in GIS and, and mapping, applied mapping. Uh, and there's really, uh, it's really hard to imagine an industry that is more spatial in nature than wireline uh, telecommunications. Uh, everything, everything relies on mapping, uh, uh, doing designs, laying out fiber uh, into communities, um, backbones and, and trunks and, and uh, distribution cables. You got to know where all the targets are and how you're going to get there, how splicing occurs along the way. So we're all about the, the physical uh, outside plant, the physical infrastructure of the network, um, inventorying that and providing a, a container for uh, broadband operators and network builders to, um, you know, to design these networks and then to build and operate them as well. Sean, I'm just I'm curious how you fit into this. Uh, you have a mapping background as well. Uh, what sort of stuff do you are you bringing to it? We when we first started off as a company, of course, we were about 11 years ago. We were just providing you know web mapping services to really anybody who was interested. So whether it was a 
government entity, nonprofit, or private organization, uh, we were, you know, delivering these web mapping services. Uh, my particular background is in utilities and GIS for utilities. So we actually had this one customer who uh, was interested in building this product. It's still out there. It's called Fiber Locator. And we built it for them, um, and we still maintain it for them. But we were looking at this, and I, I said, wow, this is really just another network. So I said, there's probably more we can do in this industry. And sure enough, we started going to different shows, Fiber Broadband Association, um, broadband communities. And what we, what we found out was a lot of people were just using what we'd call fairly primitive tools. Um, a lot of Google Earth, a lot of KMZs and KMLs being passed and forth, back and forth. And we just thought it could be done better. So we started prototyping this product out. We worked with um, certain ISPs uh, here in Maine. We worked with uh, GWI and Fletcher Kittredge, who provided a lot of insight and uh, information about what it is they need uh, this kind of mapping tool to do. Uh, so we set out to do it. And, uh, you know, we started about three years ago, maybe four years ago. Uh, it's hard to tell the difference between beta and prototype and all that. But we we started moving forward and it started gaining traction. And what we saw was the people were saying, hey, I'm over here doing my mapping in Google Earth. I'm over here managing my circuits in Excel spreadsheet. And we are now coming in there with a solution that says, you don't have to do it anymore. You can do it in one place. Uh, through this map-based, cloud-based solution called Vetro. And so that's where it kind of all started. And so I'm just trying to have a sense of, of how this works. So people were using Excel spreadsheets to manage. And I think you know anyone who's operated a network knows exactly what you're talking about, but I think everyone who hasn't is thinking, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to be honest, we were kind of in the same boat when we first started this. Uh, we asked a lot of questions. Um, but what it boils down to, when our customers think of a circuit, um, they're thinking of that light path. So they know that it starts with, uh, you know, to put it simply, it starts with a, uh, some kind of switch in a central office, some kind of centralized building or location, uh, and it terminates at a customer location. So whether it's a residence or a business, um, that's the termination point. And there's a, there's a path that originates at CO and ends at the service location. So they're using spreadsheets um, to define that. So it starts here at central office number one, for example, and it ends here at 14 Maple Street. And here are the speeds that are being provided and so forth. What we're adding to that definition is everything in between, right? So we're saying, here's splice closure number one, here's fiber access terminal number two with, a, with uh, certain kinds of equipment in it that help define the path. So now they can go, they can define a complete path from CO to service location, not just in a tabular form, but in a graphical form. So it's the circuits, the electronic pieces, right? that define it, as well as the mapped assets, that being the cables. So you're not just seeing a red line on a map, you can also see the red line and all of the circuits that are underneath it. So I can, so put simply, I click on a line, I'm seeing all of the circuits that pass through that line, i.e. that cable, and I can do that for my entire network, right in one simple interface. 
Thanks. That's a, a very lucid explanation. Um, <laughs> no, this gets a little bit beyond mapping, but I know that you'll know the answer to it, and I can jump back to Will for this. But I'm I'm curious, just briefly. You know, I can imagine. You know, if someone cuts the fiber, that would be useful. What are some of the other things that ISPs, um, you know, would would want to have that capacity to be able to do? What does it tell them? What Sean's describing is kind of inside the cables and inside the network, the the, the engineering detail, um, uh, the inventory of strands and splicing and ports and equipment. It's a lot of detail that needs a database to be managed. And as you suggested, you might use that in an operational or maintenance context to figure out who's downstream of a problem, uh, where do I have capacity along this route, uh, or am I at max capacity? Um, and then that, that kind of brings us over to another piece of the puzzle that we also try to support, which is, uh, I'll, I'll mention two parts. One is at the very outset, it's um, evaluating the marketplace and planning uh, at a feasibility level. What would it take to build network over here? What is, what's the potential return on that investment? Uh, you, can, you can model business case in, the, in our mapping platform as well. This is before you draw any cables or any design out. Uh, you can also uh, implement both manual and automated design techniques to take that to the next level and get sort of build level costs, build materials and so forth. So you're doing uh, feasibility, planning, market assessment, uh, costing, and down in, and then you're getting into some of the stuff Sean was talking about, the engineering and, and that detail. Um, Another thing we're finding a lot of need for and interest in is uh, sales qualification. Um, we're, we're trying to record the paths of the network, and in doing so, you're getting to homes past uh, at a very granular level. We maintain address points of businesses and residences, and um, you can see exactly who's along a route and who's not. Uh, and maybe more importantly, you can invite the, the public, the, the would-be customer, to check their address and say, can I get service here? So we're marrying the planning, the selling, and the operational and engineering aspects all in one uh, mapping database. Again, I'm running at risk of trying not to reveal how ignorant I am of some of this. But, um, Sean, I'm curious about um, where some of the data goes that, that fits into this because let me, let me ask you where – or how the Vetro fiber map solution fits in when um, I'm guessing you have a whole bunch of data already where utility poles and things like that are. My understanding is it's best practice for when you are designing the network to basically walk all along it and to be taking notes, you know, like gravel driveway or, or you know, like, you know, a number of different features that you have to worry about when you're doing drops to the home and, and things like that. Is that something that then gets recorded in the Vetro fiber map or do you, you know, um, you know, what sort of information do you come pre-populating it with? Yeah, no, it's a good question because it is a GIS, right? So we can basically bring in uh, any kind of, we call them layers. So any kind of layer or constraint or asset that you, you need to see in order to properly design your network. So for example, poles and Poles are these elusive creatures, right? Um, everybody wants to know where, where they are. Um, we, we've actually talked to some fairly large customers, and I'm sitting in this room with uh, engineers, and they just they go, great, I want to buy it. Do, do the poles come with it? And um, I kind of have to chuckle a little bit. I go, no, 
No, there's, there's work to be done. Now, some of our customers, particularly uh, here in Maine, are very lucky in that the towns themselves may have conducted a large-scale mapping effort. And when I first started getting into GIS uh, back in the 90s, um, I was working with a lot of municipalities, particularly in New England. And one of the first things these municipalities would do is they would literally map their assets. So whether it be roads and sidewalks, um, a lot of it was driven by um, sanitary sewer and stormwater concerns. So they were mapping manholes, they were mapping catch basins, different things like that. Um, but in some cases, they were also capturing poles. So for example, here in South Portland, um, we were able to go into the community, we were able to kind of do an inventory of what they have, and lo and behold, they had an inventory of poles. So we've made that available in our platform, and um, our customers, those who are proposing to do work in South Portland, have been effectively using that. So as they're placing down the cables, uh, equipment with them, and so forth, they can align that with the poles. But it can be hit or miss whether or not a community actually has that information. Where we have been very lucky, and Will was talking about this earlier, where we're talking about um, helping in those planning stages where they want to know where the potential customers are and so forth, we can go into a community, look at their land records. Most communities have really uh, gotten their act together in terms of generating GIS data, and they usually start with parcels or cadastral information. So we can go in there, uh, gather the parcel information, it's all digitized, and develop points from those parcels that begin to represent the locations of homes. There's some work to be done. Uh, most of the points start in the middle of the parcel and we might have to move it to the structure itself. But it's a great starting point. Um, Will and I talk a lot about locations. There's lots of sources for that kind of information. We start with the community because we can, we can get it uh, quickly. Uh, most of the time it's, it's free. Uh, some communities do charge for it. Uh, but we can quickly get that information. And it's a great starting point. So we say, here, here are your, all your potential locations. And if they have all that other mapping, like polls, we'll bring that in too. So just between us, um, does this break down along state lines? Like, you know, is Utah the best and Florida's the worst? Um, mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, who's, who's, really good at, who's really good at having this mapping information available and who's not so good? Yeah, Will, what do you think? Well, uh, we've had a lot of experience and it's interesting. Uh, there are some uh, jackpots that you stumble into and I'll mention a couple. One is uh, in Montana, one is in Arkansas. Uh, ones here in Maine, where you might have a state GIS um, authority or office uh, compiling data, uh, oftentimes submitted upstream from counties, and then compiled and redistributed down. Um, if you can get a unified source of uh, parcel and assessing type information uh, to start with at that level, or address points uh, by the same token, um, you're, you're way ahead of the game. We've run into trouble in some states where certain counties um, uh, treat this data not as uh, kind of public domain, but rather want to charge uh, hefty fees to, to dole it out. Um, there are also commercial vendors that you can turn to to source parcel mapping and address points. Uh, it, it's actually a, a, it's something that we wrestle with quite a bit. Um, you know, we, when we're working with a smaller local ISP uh, who has a, a fairly local focus, it's definitely uh, sensible to go to the county and compile this data ourselves because we're pretty good at it. Uh, if you're talking to a large regional player or a national player, 
you know, you don't have that same luxury and uh, you might turn to a commercial source. It's worth noting what, what Sean had mentioned regarding the asset mapping, that this is something that strikes me if communities are thinking about um, you know, doing, whether it's trying to form a partnership or build their own network, they sh- probably should be trying to collect this information if it's not already available. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, when uh, Google Fiber put out their community checklist, um, there, was a, there were a number of data layers, GIS data sets that they recommended communities put together and, in fact, required that they put together if they wanted to be considered. Uh, and um, we tell people that now. I mean, when we're talking to community organizers who are getting into municipal broadband or want to, um, you can do some good legwork up front collecting. It may not be polls, but even just your address records, your, your map of uh, houses and targets and businesses, um, you know, that's a good starting point. Because believe it or not, um, you know, it's not – it's, it's not always easy or accurate or available, and uh, you, you got to have you got to have rooftop mapping. You know, we we also deal with some customers who are accepting funding, like from the FCC, maybe ACAM or CAF, and there are new reporting requirements that require them to uh, report back upstream the latitude and longitude of the actual rooftop uh, or the you know the structure itself that's being served. Uh, whereas in the past, you know, a lot of reporting is done at a polygon level, a census block level, which is not really good enough for uh, a lot of things that we're talking about. Yeah, I suppose we're going to have the the data getting um, better and better over the years, hopefully, a little more granular. Um, Exactly. Well, let's talk about let's talk about real life use cases. Then, Um, who's using the the platform, and and what are they doing with it? We have um, a number of kind of segments, I guess, represented. Uh, we started building this with input from small uh, CLEX, competitive internet service providers, uh, ISPs, um, that you might call tier two or tier three or however many tiers down you want to go right down to the smallest startups. <laughs> uh, tier X. Yeah, tier X. Uh, and, you know, they all shared a common pain around, you know, this mapping. And I, it was sort of mapping chaos that we we're trying to bring some order to to help them uh, operate more efficiently and to scale. Um, there, there are also wireless ISPs, WISPs, using this in the very same way. Um, they just need to add a few elements to the map, uh, towers and where they can reach from those towers, rooftop access points, uh, antennas. Um, we're working with a, a good number of electric, rural electric co-ops now uh, who are adopting the platform to build fiber to the home networks alongside their um, traditional electric uh, plant. Um, we have some dark fiber providers, including the main fiber company here in Maine that provide, uh, you know, uh, leased strands for transport in an open access manner. We got some rural telephone companies and we have some consulting engineers that do design build work for the network owners. Um, I did not mention municipal, which is, I, I can't forget them, uh, Chris. I know that's, your uh, your area of focus, and uh, we do have a number of towns and um, uh, groups of towns getting together to build open access, municipally owned fiber networks as a utility, and we're excited to get more and more involved in that space. Yes, I think um, many of us are hoping that that will be a rapidly growing space because of uh, um, how it neatly solves a number of the challenges that um, both political and technological that uh, we see. Yeah, and as Sean mentioned, we're 
we're a couple of years in the market and in production capacity. We're sort of the new kids on the block. There's a lot of traditional mapping tools out there um, that deal with networks, uh, fiber, you know, wireline networks. And a lot of them are a little bit long in the tooth and a little bit hard to hard to maneuver. Um, we've we've designed ours. We hope to be really easy and simple. And it kind of looks like a Google Map, but it has a lot of sophistication. Um, and it's in the cloud, which means we can service anyone anywhere. Um, we do have folks in uh, 28 states and now uh, 13 countries uh, using the platform, and they're signing up uh, pretty quickly. Will or Sean, um, is there any particular clients you've had that have come forward and just surprised you and you thought, yeah, I never really thought about that or that we could use our tool in that way? Yeah, all the time, Chris. The, yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you have any clients that, that have boring uses for your tool? <laughs> yeah. No. It, it's, um, let me try to answer it this way. You know, building software is, um, which is what we're doing, is um, it can be a complicated process, but the real challenge is, you know, you're always trying to improve it. You're always trying to listen to your customers, and but you have to filter uh, here and there. For the most part, we're getting great input from our customers. They ask if they can do some very interesting things. We always explore it, and we say, yes, let, let, let's try to do that. Um, a lot of it's around – some of it's kind of boring uh, and engineering-related, but, you know, we're constantly, we have to evolve, right? So things like multiplexing and how you manage um, circuits along that. We have a customer right now we're looking at where we've got to begin to model um, wireless last uh, mile. So instead of uh, uh, drop to the house, they're now looking at setting up wireline to the nodes and going wireless from that point. Nothing new, uh, essentially, but we're seeing um, uh, more and more customers going to that kind of model. And so our software needs to evolve uh, with, with that. Uh, so I guess as a summary, I'd say we're always hearing some interesting things. At first, our reaction was, wow, nobody does it the same way. But as you get into this more, you start seeing some uh, general patterns and trends that, that make a lot of sense. There's a, a type of customer I didn't mention, and um, we're now working with the um, Connect, Connect Main Authority and, you know, these state, state broadband programs. Um, you know, they're coming in looking at things from a 30,000-foot kind of level, and they want to know, well, you know, what would it cost um, on a macro scale to build fiber to the home or build a broadband network in community A, community B, or statewide for that matter? So um, sort of kind of going upstream in altitude there and, and helping them with that. So you, you mentioned Maine, and Maine is uh, a place where a lot of things are happening. The Maine Broadband Coalition, I think, is a model for other states. Um, you know, Sean, this would be a time, and if I was right in that, I think you did recently move to Maine. You mm -hmm. can talk about how great Portland is. That seems to be something that people who've just moved to Portland do. Yeah, yeah Portland's a great town. Um, I actually lived here. Uh, Will and I, uh, we met. Uh, I lived here from 99 to 2007. Uh, Will and I met because we were in the same industry. We, we actually served on the main geo library, library board together. Uh, just yesterday, we were in the, uh, the uh, a state building. Of it. Oh, my gosh, I haven't been here in a long time. Um, that's how we met. So I am familiar with Portland. It has changed a lot, I will say, Chris. Over, I've been gone for 11 years. Um, it has changed a little bit, but for the good. Um, a lot of activity here, uh, a lot of companies, new companies um, that have kind of sprung up, uh, tech companies uh, in particular, I've noticed a fair amount of them. So it's become um, a pretty cool place to to be. Uh, I don't think Portland always had that reputation, but I definitely think it's it's got it now. 
So let me ask you, as as two people who have paid close attention and as Maine has been wrestling with its broadband challenges and I think laying the foundation, I mean, by no means is it solved. Um, there's a lot of enthusiasm around solving it. Um, what's unique to Maine and what should other people learn from Maine um, based on your observations? Yeah, I, I grew up here and it's sort of went away and came back. I've been back 20 years now in Portland doing this mapping stuff. And sometimes we're just uh, the technicians or the map guys or the data guys, but uh, it is fun to be involved at a community and a policy level in this stuff in particular in Maine. And uh, I guess I would just comment that we're seeing what I would call a groundswell of activity in communities and towns around the state, like kind of stepping to the plate and saying, you know, we're going to, we're going to take matters into our own hands here uh, and take a, you know, take a run at some sort of partnership, public private partnership. Um, And there's everything along the spectrum there uh, coming into focus. Um, We've got this new uh, ability to, to have our authorization, I guess you would say to have um, broadband utility districts, that's brand new. There's two, there's one. Uh, the first one is called Down East Broadband, way down eastern Maine. There's um, there are more in the works. Um, there are a lot of other towns doing varieties of things to uh, build little incremental starter projects. There's an RFP in Millinocket right now for that uh, to get quotes to build out uh, groups of three or four towns together. There's a lot going on um, in the uh, municipal space, and I, I'll also mention that they're they're well supported by our small ISPs. There's a spirit of cooperation, I would definitely point out, and um, there's technical expertise being shared. There are some leading voices. We mentioned Fletcher with GWI. He's done amazing things and has big plans. Uh, we work with Pioneer Broadband up in, in the uh, Arista County. They've gone ahead and built fiber to the home in Holton, Maine, which is an amazing project, actually. Several thousand homes now lit up with, you know, world-class internet at the, the northern tip of I-95. <laughs> uh, we've got cooperation with the, this this project called the Three Ring Binder, which Maine Fiber Company uh, runs as that open access middle mile. We have the rural telephone companies participating. We work with Otelco. They're doing all kinds of stuff to facilitate and promote and partner on these projects. So it it just feels like a spirit of cooperation and a whole lot of can-do, roll-up-your-sleeves kind of uh, activity going on uh, to build broadband. Right. I wanted to jump in before I give Sean a chance to to weigh in on that. Also, just to note that you mentioned Pioneer. They're an incumbent, right? Right. And I just wanted to, I wanted to flag that because sometimes we use sloppy language and we're we talk about frustration with some of the bigger companies that are often incumbents that that haven't done a good job. But um, you know, in a, in a number of states, not every state, but in a number of states, there's companies that are incumbents that are locally rooted and still make a lot of investments and and are really helping uh, their communities. Yeah, I th- actually, it's not Pioneer Telephone. This is Pioneer Broadband, and I think they would be called a competitive ISP. Um, Otelco. On the other hand, would be called an ILEC or an incumbent. Uh, although, as I mentioned earlier, you know a lot of these companies have multiple faces and facets um, and business lines. Um, but in all in all those cases I mentioned, these are uh, companies that are um, they're doing a lot of good work. Um, Axiom is another one doing a lot of planning and broadband plants out there in Maine. And uh, we we've been fortunate to have 
I don't know, arm's length exposure to some of these projects by um, some of our customers that are doing work in our platform for the towns, going all the, going back to Rockport and South Portland. Um, and I'm sure you've heard about the project on Islesboro, the island that just uh, recently completed the fiber to the home build. Um, there's a, so there's, there's quite a few really interesting examples, and they're just really the tip of the iceberg, I think. Yes, uh, Paige has been on the show in the past, um, mm-hmm. and I was just thinking we need to get him back on now that the network is built. Yeah. Uh, but Sean, um, let me ask you, what's going on in, uh, in Maine that you think other people should be paying attention to and learning from? You know, I grew up in Rochester, New York. So, uh, you know, upstate New York, New York State as a whole behaves very differently from most New England states, uh, meaning that you know, there's a lot of local control. And uh, someone who has a, a planning background, you know, it almost seems antithesis to the way decisions should be made. They should be made on a regional basis. But the real strength in these towns and the way towns are set up in Maine is that there's a lot of local control. So the community can get together. Uh, they can get together with the uh, adjacent community as well. But it's pretty easy to get together to make decisions like this. You know, do we want broadband or not? There's referendums as well. So there are instruments to to kind of facilitate this this kind of stuff. And I think that this um, can-do attitude that Will mentioned is very much a part of it. That you know that Yankee can-do attitude is very relevant because they know how to organize here pretty well. Um, they know how to work through uh, the issues very well. We were just up in Augusta yesterday talking with some people, and I was thoroughly impressed with the level of knowledge that the person we were talking to had. They understood what the issues were, uh, you know, trying to do a statewide program. Uh, they had all the technical details they needed. I think they're well on the, the road to having a very successful program. So I, I think Maine's going to be able to pull it off. And not, not just a municipal level, they also have a very robust um, ISP ecosystem. And I, I've talked to you several times, and I know you've always said, well, it, you know, it's great to have these opportunities, but if there's no one to do it, right, then, then what are we going to do? And I think um, Maine has enough ISPs to really kind of pull this off. And they're all engaged, right? You know, as a community expresses interests, uh, they know who to reach out to right away. And they might even know them. It could be their neighbor. So the relationships are, 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 are here. Um, I, the ideas are here. And uh, ho- hopefully the money's coming to really make this work. I've found this to be uh, informative, um, but also fun and, and um, a reminder of, of what great things are happening up in Maine. Um, for a few years, I think the legislature's been enthusiastic about expanding broadband while knowing that your governor would probably not implement anything they passed. So um, January is a whole new a whole new year. The legislature can can start working with the governor, hopefully, and, and we'll see what happens next because there's a lot of potential. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. yeah, we to- totally agree, Chris. And um, it's a turning of the page politically, and uh, we're excited to see what comes. Well, thank you both for coming on and um, and sharing some of the background of what it takes to to build these networks, to operate them. You know, some of these tools, your tool, the Vetro Fiber Map, um, and uh, and then chatting with me about one of my favorite states. All right, Chris. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you, Chris. That was Christopher with Will Mitchell and Sean Myers from Vetro Fiber Map. You can learn more about the company at VetroFiberMap.com. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at MuniNetworks.org slash broadbandbits. 
Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. And while you're there, please take a moment to donate. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 333 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. (laughs) 